Um, so, yes, uh, I am a Doctor Who fan, uh, I'm a Christian, and I'm a philosopher by academic training. And I work uh, part of my time with this uh, College of Journalism in Norway, and part of my time with Demaris Trust, who are a Christian educational charity. And I go around um, uh, schools working with uh, A-level students doing philosophy conferences with them. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting today to see what happens when you collide an interest in uh, uh, Doctor Who, uh, specifically Daleks, and uh, Christianity and philosophy. So I'm going to kind of, kind of mash those all up together. Um, let me do some blatant self-advertising uh, as well. Um, two books of mine that are particularly relevant to this. I'm the co-author of uh, this book, Back in Time, A Thinking Fan's Guide to Doctor Who. Uh, which covers uh, the first uh, new season of Doctor Who when it came out in 2005, the uh, Christopher Eccleston era, and the back sort of catalogue of the show. Uh, and uh, so if you're interested in this, I'll sell it to you for seven quid today. I've also got another book of mine which I'll give you for seven quid, which is on the New Atheist Movement, not really relevant to today. But another one that uh, is relevant today, it's not quite published yet, it's coming out later this year in September, uh, called Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. And the kind of intersection of uh, an interest in uh, Jesus and who he was, uh, and in uh, the Doctor, is kind of the core of what I'm doing today. I'd like to start off by mentioning something about the psychology of monsters. Uh, it's a word with Latin roots, uh, words like monstrum, uh, which means that which teaches. Think of our word demonstrate. If I demonstrate something to the class, I'm teaching them. Monstrere means to show, monere means to warn, teaching in the sense of warning about something. And this theme of teaching and showing and warning is obvious from the English word demonstrate. And monsters, I think, fall into two or three basic categories, but there's a whole basic category of, of monsters within sort of literary genre and media films and so on as ways of confronting real or possible evils. Uh, I'm not talking about the kind of monster that's scary because, ooh, it's got sharp teeth and it's after me much more the kind of monster that in the film Alien, for example, yes, you know, it's scary, it's got sharp teeth and it's after you, but it's also playing on all sorts of sort of Freudian uh, imageries and uh, fear, male fear of childbirth and rape and all sorts of things are going on uh, sort of in the psychology of the background of that uh, movie monster. So that kind of monster. And I would suggest that the more monstrous the evil, as it were, and the more successfully a monster symbolises that evil, the scarier it's going to be, basically. Uh, this uh, is my equivalent of Top Gear's cool wall for cars. It's my scary wall of monsters. And you see we have here a sliding scale from uh, mildly scary, quite scary, very scary, chilling, all the way through to terrifying. Uh, it's the rating system that the BBC Doctor Who website used, and they had it, it previewed the show by a family every week in the first season, at least. And uh, we've got here a selection of, of Doctor Who monsters, and, well, I've arranged them in what I reckon is probably the reverse order. But see if you agree with me about this. Um, 
where would you, on this sliding scale from mildly scary to terrifying, say, put a monster like, uh, presuming you've seen enough Doctor Who uh, to know, uh, the Slovene, the big green family who uh, put on human skins in order to blend in and fart a lot. <laughs> you know, are they, are they terrifying, no. chilling, very scary? Quite scary, quite scary. You know, at the other end, something like um, well, the Cybermen, for example. Now, are the Cybermen more or less scary than the Slovene? Less scary than the Slovene. Majority think more scary than the Slovene. Well, they do have ways. Yes. Uh, well. If uh, William's rule of monstrousness there, as I laid it out, is going to hold, I, I would suggest that Cybermen are probably more scary than Slovene. Why? Because it's not just they've got uh, an inherent danger to them, but the, rather they represent something. It, from their origins in the show, they represent the concept of the loss of your humanity. It's not that a Cyberman is going to kill you, the scary thing about a Cyberman is going to make you into one of them. And they are unfeeling, uh, emotionless, uh, and unhuman. They've lost their humanity. So that makes them scary. Uh, similarly, particularly focusing on uh, Daleks, oh, press the wrong button there, focusing on Daleks, they are, I would suggest, this kind of symbolic monster. Um, if we take this category of monster as a human invention that warns us, in a sense we're projecting about our own fears and indeed our own capacity for evil one to another. It demonstrates in a sense our need to be kind of saved from ourself and we use that literary construct to kind of explore that. And any story like Doctor Who where monsters are defeated repeatedly are called in the in the literature a drama of reassurance a drama of reassurance when an evil is is symbolized and represented and yet always overcome there's something kind of reassuring about that for us so let's look at uh, just a couple of uh, old clips of Doctor Who and the Daleks uh, that illustrate this way in which they're a symbolic monster that tells us something about the human condition and the way in which the writers of Doctor Who have quite cleverly uh, continued to update the basic theme about Daleks to fit in with the cultural fears of the time that they were writing in. So I reckon that Daleks are basically, from their origins, Nazis. Daleks are fascists, they're racists, they, they fundamentally represent a hatred of anything that's different from them. That's why they want to exterminate everyone else. That's why they're obsessed about racial purity and so on. Um, that disease, if you like, remains constant, but the symptoms get sort of recontextualized as time goes on. You can even see this picture from Dalek Invasion of Earth with the Dalek in uh, Trafalgar Square kind of doing a Nazi salute with its uh, plunger. So let's uh, travel back in time, if you like, to 1962, the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, when the world came right to the brink of nuclear war between America and Russia. Uh, 
Doctor Who, as a TV programme, started in 1963. And the Doctor and his companions in the second story of that first season land on a desolate planet and explore an apparently empty city. Well, as you see, the Doctor actually went on a bit of a trajectory in that first season to becoming the, the more sort of heroic figure that we know and love. Um, the Dalek design was a, a, a very uh, classic uh, design for a monster, particularly because it did not look like a man in a suit kind of monster. It has a sort of non-human profile because of the way they designed it, which was very uh, clever. And you can see the way in which it's playing on the very contemporary fear of nuclear war. And actually, of course, it turns out that the Daleks are not the robots that they look like, but they're organic creatures who've had to sort of retreat into these life support systems because of the way they've mutated, because of the nuclear war that they engaged in on their own planet. So it's a sort of warning about the dangers of nuclear warfare. And then we uh, zip forward a little bit uh, in time. Uh, I'm just going to give one more example from classic Doctor Who from the 1970s. Uh, a growing disenchantment with uh, science, represented by uh, a couple of uh, famous books at the time, things like The Making of a Counterculture or The Technological Society, which, you know, perhaps not unsurprisingly, since you know, the, the 1950s kind of excitement about the way science is going to solve all of our problems, and then uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on, that, and people begin to think, well, actually, maybe there are dangers to this whole science business as well. And so, in Genesis of the Daleks, right slap bang in the middle of the 70s, I'm uh, one year old now, and uh, the mad scientist Davros is revealed as the creator of the Daleks in this uh, gripping scene with uh, Tom Baker. And a very sore throat by the sounds of it as well. So, the creator of the Daleks is kind of a, a power-mad uh, Nazi eugenicist uh, playing God with science, that power will set me up above the gods. Well, after quite a long break since 1989, uh, Doctor Who makes a triumphant return to telly. Now, you're going to bring back the Daleks as the most iconic uh, Doctor Who monster from the past. You have to think to yourself, okay, how do we make them scary? What do we fear today? global religious terrorism. It's not a hard answer. So, if you can recontextualize your Dalek symbolic monster to represent this, that should make them scary, you see. So, Parting of the Ways, 2005, the mad Emperor Dalek is creating a new Dalek race out of the flotsam and jetsam of humanity. A lot going on in that script, I think, written by Russell T. Davis, uh, about radicalization, those that society leaves open to radicalization are those that society doesn't look after, and so on. But there you go. The Daleks are now religious fundamentalists, because that's what we fear. Even in the most recent series, where we had the, uh, the fantastic uh, Dalek green jackets pretending that they were British soldiers, in World War II. Rather bizarre. 
would you like a cup of tea and all of this business? Uh, it's still actually a sort of updating of that common theme. When I show you this poster from a newspaper revealed the Afghan soldier who murdered his British comrades, the enemy within, the person who says, I'm fighting on your side, and then turns on you. Um, so it's still being updated in terms of modern context. So I think I've hopefully made my point sufficiently uh, with those about the way in which they're kind of symbolic and they're really telling us things about things that we fear about ourselves, the human condition, the way society is, the way humans can misuse power and uh, knowledge of science and so on. Four lessons about the nature of evil that you could take from Daleks. First, I would suggest, is that evil is real. I don't think anyone actually watches Doctor Who as a moral relativist, as someone who says, well, it's just you know, different strokes for different folks, what's uh, good in one society is bad in another, and it, it's not that you know, one is right and one is wrong, it's just people differ and that's all you can kind of say about it. We don't watch Doctor Who rooting for the Daleks to win. Or if we were on the sofa with someone else who was rooting for the Daleks to win, we'd think there's something a bit wrong with them, really. Um, clearly they are evil and should be opposed. Well, if Daleks are symbolic monsters, one of the things that that tells us as well is that that evil is a reflection of something that's in us. Evil must be fought, yeah, that's the right thing to do. That's why we love the Doctor, because he's always fighting against evil. And as a drama of reassurance, Doctor Who kind of assumes, well, evil can be beaten. Well, likewise, according to the Bible, evil is, is real, objective reality. It's in us, in humanity. Um, that evil must be fought against, that's the right thing to do, and indeed evil can and will one day be beaten. So there's a, a parallel between uh, the kind of world view of evil and its relation to human nature and so on between the Bible and Doctor Who. According to the Bible, human history is ultimately a drama of reassurance. Have a look at uh, Revelation chapter 21 for an excellent poetic summary of that. But who is going to save us from evil? You get the pun, I like the smile that says, I got the pun. Ha! Who will save us from evil? Oh dear. I did that go along there. Come down here seems that my technology has decided to say resume slideshow. Interesting. I wonder if it received another signal from somewhere. I click back. Right. On track again. In both Doctor Who and in the, uh, the biblical story, we get presented with reassuring saviour figures who save humanity from evil, and who also actually inspire humans to fight against evil themselves. It's a kind of both 
and going on. It's not just someone coming in from the outside and, and making everything right, but it's someone coming in from the outside and sort of incorporating uh, humans into their fight against evil. Uh, I think this is a particularly significant scene um, from that Christopher Eccleston series at the end, where Rose shows how she's been inspired by meeting the Doctor to uh, fight the good fight, as some uh, rather old-fashioned Christian terminology might put it. Brings to mind biblical verses like, faith without deeds is dead. The Christian who has been captivated by the person of Jesus and is enthusiastic uh, about following him because they think that he's shown them a better way of life is not adopting a uh, holier-than-thou attitude towards other people. It's not saying, I've got something that means I'm better than you. Rather, just like Rose, the Christian is in the position of someone who is saying, I have been fortunate enough to find this thing that I think is great, this person who I think is wonderful, who shows me a better way of life, who helps me to be more than I could be without him, without knowing him. And I would love to share that and, and include you within this, because I think it's great. Um, it is not a, you know, it's Mickey saying, do you think you're better than us? No, not at all. But I do think that Jesus is better than me. There are lots of points of analogy. I think we've got like 17 points of analogy worked out in the books between the figure of the Doctor and the Christ or the Messiah uh, in the Bible. I won't uh, bore you by going through this uh, list. Uh, you can just have a flick through with your eyeballs there. But um, Sylvester McCoy, who uh, played Doctor Number 7, the last doctor of the original run, uh, and actually had uh, trained to be a priest before going into uh, showbiz. Uh, he says it's the classic story, Doctor Who, of someone from outside our world coming down to help us. That makes it very attractive to human beings. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but Jesus came down from outside the world to save us, and it's that kind of arena. So from one of the actors who played the part, very explicitly uh, acknowledging this kind of um, resonance between uh, those two uh, characters. Now, I'd be very happy to say that both stories uh, about the Doctor and about Jesus uh, contain lots of truth, contain moral truths, for example, and can both inspire people to live better lives. I think they can both serve that purpose in people's lives. But of course, Christians have the added motivation that when it comes to talking about the story of Jesus, we actually believe that that story, unlike the Doctor Who story, is actually true as well. That he actually is a real person that you can know now. Remember when Rose is saying, yeah, the fact that the Doctor's dying for humanity 200,000 years in the future, that doesn't mean it's got no relevance now. Well, if you, for the Christian, would want to say the fact that Jesus you know, died on the cross 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that that's something that's not relevant to now, given that Jesus was who he claimed to be. If he wasn't just a man who got executed by the Romans in the first century, but if he was also the Son of God, who still exists, who wants to relate to you and love you here and now, then there's a relevancy of that story to the present uh, time. So although Doctor Who isn't true, 
I'm quite happy to say from the viewpoint of a Christian worldview that it contains many truths, but also it's quite well known for containing an underlying scepticism about the supernatural. Uh, It's always uh, been a champion of uh, a scientific understanding of reality, which I've got no problem with, but it interprets traditionally having a scientific understanding of reality as having a, a materialistic understanding of reality in in philosophical terms, and those are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, However, it is interesting to note that the show's become a little bit more sceptical about its own scepticism, as it were, in recent years. I've got a clip here from um, David Tennant episode, The Satan Pit, uh, where it appears that they've met the devil, although I think pretty clearly he's not the devil, but... uh, he is uh, descending into this dark uh, pit of a prison where this strange being with various uh, apparently supernatural powers has been captured and uh, has a very interesting uh, conversation on the way down about his kind of world view. Sort of expressing a sort of um, soft agnosticism, as the philosophers would say. Kind of view that says, well, I, I, I don't know the answer, but actually... I'm hopeful, at least, that I might come to know the answer. Uh, at least knowledge is, is a possibility that I'm open to. And although I've got a certain view of things, maybe there comes a point where that view that I've got might have to bow to the weight of contrary experience. I travel in the hope of being proved wrong, he kind of says. In any process of coming to understand reality, just to go into a little bit of epistemology, that is theory of knowledge for you, There's a sort of a hermeneutical dialogue, as it's called, between your your spiritual outlook, your kind of worldview, your philosophy, your criteria of theory choice or explanation, the kind of rules of thumb of good reasoning that you might follow, the actual data of experience and things to be explained, and how you interpret or explain that data. So let me diagram it for you like like this. Supposing you have an atheistic worldview and you think there is no God. Well, one of your rules for how to think properly about reality would probably include something like it doesn't really make sense to appeal to a miracle happening in order to explain anything. Because, I mean, who's going to work the miracle if there's no God? Okay, so that just doesn't make sense. So clearly... If you then came to a bunch of uh, historical data about uh, what happened in first century Palestine when Jesus was uh, crucified, buried in a tomb that was later found empty, and then loads of individuals and groups of people had experiences that they sincerely believed were of meeting a resurrected Jesus, experiences that flipped their religious worldview upside down, you might say, well, that's all very interesting. But when I come to explain or interpret that data from history, I'm going to be driven to saying that, well, what happened must have been some kind of of hoax, some kind of deceit, or some kind of delusion on those people's part. Because the one thing that it doesn't make any sense to say is that they were actually right in saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Because he couldn't have done. Because there's no possibility of miracles. Because... There's no God. But in that process, 
how much weight are you putting on what you already believe and how much weight are you putting on allowing experience to shape what you believe. On the other hand, if you were a theist, someone who already believed in some kind of a god, who would therefore think, well, it might on some occasions, given enough evidence, make sense to appeal to a miracle, the same data might well convince you that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, you might like to think through what would happen if I started hit this end as an agnostic, saying, well, I don't know whether or not there's a God. I don't know whether or not miracles happen or are possible. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. What's the data? What's the best explanation? As um, one time famous atheist philosopher Anthony Flew said, certainly, given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely, given the data that we have. You may have heard of this guy, Bart Ehrman, is an agnostic uh, New Testament critic. And in a debate uh, on the resurrection uh, with a Christian philosopher called William Lane Craig, he said this, he said, the reason that the resurrection makes sense to Bill is because he's a believer in God. And so, of course, God can act in the world. Why not? Well, that presupposes a belief in God. I think you can kind of see where he's, he's coming from. Well, on the one hand, it's significant to note that Ehrman is conceding here that belief in Jesus' resurrection, which would kind of validate all of his claims about himself and his teaching, belief in Jesus' resurrection makes sense if you already believe in a God when you approach the data. But even that concession, I'd point out, doesn't actually go far enough because he says that presupposes a belief in God. Well, I'd say, well, agnostics and, and sort of non-dogmatic atheists, if you like, could also admit the possibility. They might say, well, I think it's unlikely that there's a God. I think it's unlikely that there are miracles, but they're possible. And if I did have enough evidence to convince me one had happened, then that might convince me to change my worldview. So it might well make sense to end up believing in the resurrection changing worldview even if you started out as an atheist. So let's try and tie this together and see if we've got some time for Q&A. Daleks as a symbolic type of monster show us that evil is an objective fact about us. It's of course only a partial reflection of our nature. Humans are not as evil as Daleks. We are not just one thing, um, but the Bible would agree with that. It would say we're created in the image of God. We're fantastic, but we're also fallen and terrible. I could mention, and we could, might bring this out in the Q&A time, I won't rehearse it here, but for example, the moral argument for God might be something very interesting to think about in this context. Uh, the kind of argument w would say, briefly, if there are objective moral facts, the kind of thing that you discover to be true, rather than thinking of morals as things that we invent, if there are discoverable moral facts out there, the best explanation of that would be that there is a God who is the kind of the standard, his character would be the standard of those moral values, or many atheists actually would say, if there is no God, then it makes sense to think that there are no objective moral obligations or prescriptions in reality and to think that morality is just subjective. 
But if you say, okay, given that there are objective moral facts, it would make sense to believe in God, if you add the premise that there are some objective moral facts, at least one, then of course it follows deductively that there is a God. And that objective moral fact that you start the argument from could just as well be the observation that something evil is real. That there's an objective evil fact in reality. Because how do you judge it to be evil? Doesn't that mean a falling short of what is good and not being what it ought to be? So you can just as well mount the argument from the observation that there's real evil in us, the world, whatever, as you can from the observation that some things are good. But if you followed that track through, that would give you at least some reason to think that there's some kind of a God. It would make it more plausible to think that miracles and so on might happen. And then when you looked at the, the historical evidence about Jesus, with that kind of background knowledge it would at least make you far more open to interpreting it in the way that Christians do. Um, so, that kind of gets us from, uh, from Daleks and Doctor Who and the nature of evil through to uh, thinking uh, about uh, Jesus and the nature of, of Christianity. So I'll stop the, the formal presentation there and we've got sort of 10-15 minutes for uh, dialogue, Q&A. Um, let me remind you, I'll, I'll flog your book for seven quid if you want one. And uh, thank you very much for coming along and being such an attentive audience. Thank you.